Is it possible for us to actually introduce happiness into our lives? This question has been addressed ad nauseum, but I want to address it today in a way that's a little different, that I'm confident will leave you with a new view of the nature of happiness and clarity in your path forward from here, from now. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bites of Judaism podcast, helping you unlock your best life, know your why, and be everything you were born to be. To subscribe to the podcast, go to rabbiglick.link slash podcast. This podcast has been made possible by Mr. and Mrs. Dovidin Malki Smetana. To dedicate a future episode of the podcast, be in touch at podcast at rabbiglick.com. So is it possible for us to actually introduce happiness into our lives? Technically, no. But practically, effectively, the answer is yes. Now, that sounds a little bit technical and picky, but it's important. And the reason I want to approach it this way is because it's important to understand the nature of happiness. And the more we understand the nature of happiness and how it works and why it works that way, the better equipped we'll be to direct our efforts and attention into the things that are actually going to bring the result that we all want, which at the end of the day is we all want to be happy and we should. We should want that and we should achieve it. So the question is why technically not? And when we understand why technically not, we'll also understand how practically yes, because ultimately that's the thing that's most important to us. And that's the thing we're interested in. So I want to first draw an analogy, talk about something similar. So that there's this idea that's discussed that that's discussed in texts by the sages. And it's basically, it says, it's, it's almost kind of a, a, a proverb-ish. And it says that one who pursues honor, one who chases after honor and respect, the honor and respect will run away from them. And if a person runs away from honor and respect, the honor and respect will chase after them. Now, you know, this sounds like maybe it's a nice thing and it's a good reward and the reward for running away from honor and respect is that it chases after us and that the punishment for chasing after it is that, you know, it runs away from us. But it's not just a a reward and punishment situation. It's actually a, a basic human nature situation. And it's, it's, it's really common sense once we understand how it works and why think about it for a minute. Think about other people in your life who you really have a deep, profound respect for people you really look up to. And if you think about, You know, if you're lucky enough to have someone in your life who you respect profoundly, chances are that if you stop and think for a minute, you'll see that you'll realize that this person is someone who is honestly and authentically dedicated and committed to something, something that they believe in and something that they're pursuing, something they're trying to make into a reality and that they're dedicated wholeheartedly to the pursuit of that thing that they believe in. And the nature of us as people is that when we see someone who's dedicated, who's committed to something they believe in, especially when it's something that's much bigger than who they are as an individual, an ideal, something that's, that's big and that's true to them and that they're really committed, we naturally are drawn to feel respect for such people. Those people don't demand respect, but they do command respect. It's natural. And when we see someone who's, you know, behaving in the way they're behaving because they're trying to earn respect and honor, respect and honor is the last thing we're going to feel for such a person. Even if we don't consciously, you know, stop and think, well, is this person trying to chase respect and honor or not? But the bottom line is when someone's chasing respect and honor, we can smell it from a country mile away subconsciously. 
And we're not likely to actually feel respect for a person when they're trying to get it. So the bottom line is, the nature of respect is that if someone is chasing respect and trying to get respect, it's going to run away from them. We're not likely to be inclined to feel a large degree of respect for someone that's trying to earn respect and honor. Because that's not what makes us feel respect for someone. That's not what makes us honor people. The thing that makes us feel respect and honor for someone naturally is when they're not chasing the honor and they're not interested in respect. What they're chasing after is the realization of that thing that they believe in and that they're dedicated and committed to it. So the reason that honor and respect run away from the person who's chasing after them and chase after the person who's not looking for them, who's running away from them, is not just an issue of reward and and punishment. It's a matter of, of nature. Because the thing that makes us feel respect and honor towards someone, the thing that makes us feel respect towards someone and to honor them is not, does not include trying to get honor and respect. Trying to get honor and respect is to a degree the opposite of the thing that makes us feel honor and respect. So if a person's chasing honor and respect, by definition, they will not get it. Because chasing honor and respect is the opposite of the thing that makes people feel honor and respect for someone. So the the intentional pursuit of honor and respect is self-defeating by definition and by its nature, not just as a reward and punishment. That that's the nature of the way it works. That's human nature. And the same thing is true of happiness. And this is why. It's so easy to get caught up in chasing happiness, in the pursuit of happiness, and to feel like the the more we run after it and work so hard and try to, to, to be happy, to become happy, the more elusive it becomes. Because the nature of happiness is such that that which causes happiness does not include chasing happiness, does not include trying to be happy. And if we're caught up in the pursuit of happiness, if we're caught up in trying to become happy, it will not lead to happiness. And this is so important to understand. I want to talk about why that's the case, about what is this the nature of happiness that makes this be the case. And this is why I started off saying that technically, no, we can't introduce happiness proactively because happiness doesn't work that way. But effectively, we can. If we once we understand how it works, if we can let go of the pursuit of happiness, because the pursuit of happiness is self-defeating by definition, by the nature of happiness, and instead get involved in the things that do cause happiness, that's the way that we can actually achieve happiness. And so I want to talk about the nature of happiness. And happiness is sort of in a category of very fundamental things that are built into our nature biologically as people. And these systems are built into our nature to guide us through life. So I want to go, let's start super, super basic, right? Let's talk very basic um, about hunger and thirst, right? I want to talk for a couple minutes about the nature of hunger and thirst and how they work and why they work that way, right? So it's very simple and obvious. If a person doesn't eat, if a person goes too long without ingesting nutrients, obtaining nutrients, calories, etc., 
they're going to get malnourished. And obviously the down, you know, the road outcome of that, God forbid, is not good. And the same thing is true of water. In fact, it's it, it the danger with water, the need for water is more urgent than the need for food. If a person doesn't intake any water, they will relatively quickly and a lot faster than they'll get hungry and, and malnourished, they will become dehydrated. And obviously the outcome down the road of becoming of being dehydrated is is not good, God forbid. So what our bodies do, right? How are we protected from becoming hungry and thirst or from from becoming dehydrated and malnourished? It's very simple, right? As we approach becoming dehydrated, we feel thirsty. As we approach malnutrition, hopefully well before that, we feel hungry. Now, where do you where do we feel thirst, right? When a person feels hungry, where do you feel it? You feel it in your throat, in your mouth your lips, your tongue, maybe when it gets more extreme, right? But when we feel thirsty, we feel a, 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 this dryness maybe in our mouth and throat and we want to drink something. We want to have a drink. Now, it would be intuitive to think, and the same thing is true when we're hungry, right? When we're hungry, we feel generally, if you think about where do we feel hunger? Where do you feel hunger? Chances are your answer is going to be in your stomach. We feel hunger in our stomachs. So intuitively, it would be it would make sense to assume that we feel thirst in our throats because our throat is dry our mouth is dry because our you know we're starting to be dehydrated so because our mouth and throat is dry we feel that dryness and we want to have a drink and because our stomach is empty so we feel that pain in our stomachs it hurts that it's empty we feel hungry and we want to eat but the truth is that's not actually how it works at all the way it works is very different the the thing that makes us feel hungry is actually our blood sugar or the level of nutrients in our blood generally. When our blood has enough nutrients in it to supply and to pass around the body to, to you know, to take care of the needs of our bodies, we feel, you know, we, we, there's no need to feel hungry. Once the levels of nutrients in our blood start to drop and the nutrients that we've eaten and, you know, digested and they've gone in the blood and we've, we've used them up and the levels in the blood are starting to get low and there's not enough nutrients available in the blood for the body to do its work optimally, our brains get a message that our blood sugar is low, the level of nutrients in our blood is low, and our brain now understands that we need to get more nutrients. How do we get more nutrients? The most simple and obvious way is to eat. So our brains give us this sort of message that, oh, you feel hungry, your stomach hurts, you need to eat. But the reason we feel hunger in our stomachs is not because our stomachs are empty. It's because the level of nutrients in our blood is low, and our brains want us to make sure that we eat to obtain nutrients so we get a feeling of pain in our stomachs to encourage us to eat. And the same thing's true of thirst. The the actual cause that the, the message, the trigger for thirst is not dryness in our throat and mouth. It's actually there are sensors specifically in our vascular system, in our blood vessels that measure the blood pressure, that measure how concentrated our blood is. And when our blood pressure starts to drop and the blood gets very concentrated because there's not enough water in the blood to dilute it to the level that it's supposed to be at, these sensors get the message that the blood's too concentrated. It's, it's the blood pressure's getting a bit low. There's not enough water in the, in the system, in the circulatory system. So that sends a message to our brain that says, oh, not enough water in the system. We need more water. So our brains send us a feeling of, of dryness in our throat and mouth that makes us want to drink. Right, So it's not actually that our mouth is dry, that our throat is dry, that makes us want to drink water. It's not actually that our stomach is empty that makes us want to eat food. 
It's systems that are built into our biology that when our nutrients in our blood is low, it, it, it makes us feel a sensation of dryness in our mouth and throat. And it's really just a game that our brain's playing on us, a trick our brain is playing on us to ensure, to encourage us to drink the water that we need. When the nutrients are low, it gives us a, a, a almost a fake sensation of pain in our stomachs to encourage us to eat, to get the nutrients we need. Right. So because let's say that these are the most fundamental things that we have to actively do intentionally because breathing's more urgent, but that's more complicated because it's, it's mostly automatic. But to make sure we don't get dehydrated and we don't get malnourished, there are systems built into our biology to deter us from becoming malnourished and to deter us from becoming hydrated because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And that discomfort encourages us and incentivizes us to get the water that we need and to get the nutrients that we need by eating and drinking. Now, the same thing is true of fear, really, right? When when our, our, our nervous systems in our brains detect something that is likely to be a threat to our safety or a threat to our health, they create this response that we experience as fear. We're afraid of that thing. And the fact that fear is something that's built into our nature is there to protect us from things that are a threat to our health and safety. So these are just a few basic, relatively simple examples of systems that are built into our biology, into our nature as humans to deter us from things that are not you know, going to take us in the direction that we need to go and that are going to encourage us to go in the direction that we do need to go. And these are, you know, thirst, hunger, fear. These are, let's call them primarily deterrents, right? They they deter us. They they give us discomfort or, or fear, which keeps us away from the thing that's not good for us. And there are, you know, other systems that fundamentally the same kind of thing, but let's, maybe we could, you know, describe them as rather than deterrents, they're incentives that are there to encourage us to do the things, you know, that are good for us and the things that are going to take us in the direction that we should be going. And they encourage us to go that way. You know, and these are going to be things like, you know, probably, you know, some of us are familiar with endorphins, dopamine, serotonin also to a degree, right? These are things, these are our neurotransmitters, call them hormones, maybe some of them. These are things that are built into our nature. They're part of our, our, the, of the way that our biology manages our behavior, right? So they're there to manage the way we behave by encouraging us to do the things that we should be doing, you know, and, and unfortunately today there are things, you know, our, our phones and social media have been intentionally engineered to hijack these systems, which is why they're so powerful and they're, they're, they're so, so powerfully addictive and we become so dependent on them because what they've done is they've been intentionally designed to hijack the systems that are built into our biology to encourage us and to push us towards things. And they're hijacking them and making them push us and encourage us to do things that are, you know, ultimately going to drive us towards using our phones and spending time on social media and making money for those companies. But the systems themselves are not bad at all. They're very good. You know, uh, community is one, right? Community is good for us. Now, um, before we talk about the, the way in which community is good for us at a personal level, let's talk about the way that community is good for us at a very technical level. So community is good for us because being part of a community makes life more efficient, right? When we're part of a community, we can each take different roles within that community, which means we can use our efforts and our talents more efficiently 
because we're part of a team that's working together. We can share resources with each other. We can have each other's back and support each other and protect each other, etc. So at a very technical level, community is a good thing. And that's the reason, or that's a big part of the reason why community is good for us at a personal level. And as humans, as people, we crave community because because community is good for us technically, there are systems built into our biology to encourage us to connect and to become part of a community and to behave as part of a community. And we crave companionship and community. And acting as part of a community gives us a sense of reward by altering the levels of different hormones and and neurotransmitters, etc. So because community is good for us, our biology is designed and to reward us for engaging in communal life and being part of a community to encourage us to do it because it's it's technically good for us and it's technically efficient and effective. The same way that hunger and thirst, there are systems that reward us for eating and drinking or incentivize us to eat and drink by more so by punishing rather than rewarding by punishing us for not eating and drinking with pain, with a discomfort and a hunger and thirst to encourage us to, to get the nutrients and to get the water. And the, the feeling, the, the personal fulfillment and reward that we get from being part of a community is built in to encourage us to be part of a community because it's good for us. And the same thing is true with working hard, right? There, there's not much in life that's more fulfilling than putting in effort and working really hard on something, and it it to a degree it's not even necessarily that important you know to differentiate between what it is as long as it's something that's positive if we're working hard on something positive working hard towards a goal and achieving and making a difference these things are going to give us a profound sense of fulfillment and of you know feeling rewarded deep down inside and feeling satisfied and it's the same thing again that the feeling and sensation of of rewardedness and fulfillment and satisfaction that we get ultimately at a technical level is managed by these neurotransmitters by these hormones by by dopamine by serotonin by endorphins and the reason that we wired that way is because we are here to work hard we are here to achieve we are here to make a difference and so there are systems built into our biology to encourage us to do those things, to work hard, to make a difference, to achieve, to grow. And this is, you know, why to, to a very surprising degree, actually, and the truth is to a clinical extent, there are things that can really, you know, help manage and treat even some instances of clinical depression. And of course, you know, number one is I'm not a doctor. Number two is even if I were, I would never be giving, you know, specific individual advice over a podcast, over, a, you know, a public conversation like this. But but the fact is, and it's in the data, that there are people who can actually reduce their dose or even get off some medications in some instances of clinical depression through exercise, through becoming more physically active, engaging in meditation, doing things that make them laugh. 
because these sorts of things becoming you know committing to a cause and working hard and and being dedicated to it because these things doing the things that we're supposed to be doing the things that we're you know meant to be doing naturally and biologically are going to encourage our biological systems inside to give us those rewards and to increase levels of serotonin and endorphins and dopamine which are going to make us feel better you know and and oftentimes generally speaking clinical depression is is going to be associated with you know some sort for whatever reason some sort of dysfunction of these sorts of of you know of substances within the body these sorts of these systems that are there to encourage us and make us feel good and when they're not operating optimally we can you know feel bad feel down feel depressed have low energy have low motivation etc and so getting involved in the activities that these neurotransmitters that and hormones are designed to incentivize and to reward can actually increase their levels to substantial degrees that can you know be helpful clinically that can help people you know to, to a degree that would show up in their in their clinical management and obviously again you know this is not obviously not intended as any sort of recommendation or treatment etc but you know what what I would say is what it can't hurt to do is if someone, you know, is is having issues with depression, with feeling down, etc. It can't hurt to inquire and to, you know, to raise, you know, the uh, the question perhaps with a, you know, a, a certified, etc. medical professional who's managing the situation and, you know, ask about the possibility of these sorts of things, of, of exercise, of getting involved in things and, you know, getting committed and working towards something, achieving, growing, etc. And whether, you know, there might be pathways that involve these that can, you know, be part of a, a management plan and a treatment plan. So, you know, the bottom line is ultimately, you know, and, and happiness is a big part of this. Happiness is the same sort of thing. And, you know, it, it does kind of get a little bit amorphous and the barriers between what exactly is the definition of happiness, what exactly is the definition of general well-being and mental well-being and emotional well-being. You know, it's it, I, I don't know that there are clearly defined boundaries between them. You know, but overall well-being, mental, emotional well-being, happiness, that I, let's put them all in a category, right? And some of the most important and powerful things that contribute towards a sense of well-being, a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and feeling happy, there are biological systems in place to lead to these outcomes. And And those systems are there to encourage us to do the things that we're supposed to be doing at a very technical biological level. And the same way this is true at a technical biological level, in terms of our bodies, biologically, our bodies have, every one of our bodies has a partner. And that partner is our soul. And our body and our soul are partners by definition. And we wouldn't be a person if either of them were missing. A body without a soul isn't a person, and a soul without a body isn't a person either. We are who we are because we have a body and a soul that are working together as partners that have become one entity comprised of both body and soul together. 
And the nature of our souls is equivalent and very similar in many ways to the nature of our bodies. And the same way that our bodies have functions and objectives and purposes that they're here to achieve, the same is true of our souls. And they come together to form a combined purpose and function and set of goals. And the systems that that encourage, there are, let's say, maybe parallel systems of deterrent and encouragement in both. And ultimately, they come together and they work together. There's a synthesis of the systems the same way that there's a synthesis of the body and the soul in a person. And the more we're involved in and dedicated to and focusing on the things that we're supposed to, the reason that we're here, both biologically for our bodies and for our souls, and, and ultimately they do come together, the more that we focus on those things and more that we're making progress on those things, the more we're involved in those things, the more our, our bodies and our souls are going to kick in and activate those reward systems to encourage us to do more of those things because that's what those reward systems are there for technically. The same way that, you know, when a person is thirsty, what does the person do? They drink and because the thirst is there to encourage them to drink, when they drink enough, the thirst goes away. The hunger is there to encourage us to eat. So when we eat, the hunger goes away. That's true of deterrence. With rewards and incentives, it's the opposite. Dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, etc. All these reward systems are there to encourage us to do the things we're supposed to do and the things that are good for us by making us feel a sense of reward when we do them, right? You do brutally hard exercise generally after you do really, really hard workout. What happens? You feel amazing. You feel energized. You feel motivated. You feel, you know, high. Why? Because... When we work hard, when we do that exercise, the endorphins start, you know, really the level of endorphins in our systems go up and we have all of these positive sensations and that encourages us to do it again because we got a reward. The same way that rewards can be used, you know, to encourage children to behave a certain way, you know, with treats and prizes, etc. And, you know, just the fine print there is obviously that, you know, just giving kids tons of prizes and rewards and, and training children to do things for bribes is very unhealthy. But at the same time, intentionally, you know, and strategic use of of rewards and prizes, etc. and treats can be very, very helpful in encouraging children to behave in a certain way and, and training them to behave in ways that are best for them in the long term. And the same way that we can use treats and, you know, prizes, etc. and rewards to encourage behavior in children or in students, etc., or in employees, in a, you know, in a mature adult environment. Our bodies are using rewards and treats to encourage us to do the things that we should be doing that are good for us. And that's true of our bodies and it's true of our souls. Endorphin, serotonin, you know, serotonin, um, etc., dopamine. These are there to reward us for doing the things we should be doing, to encourage us to do more of them. So when we get involved in the things that we're supposed to be doing, that is going to lead to, that is going to activate the innate reward systems 
that are there to encourage us to do more of these things. And the more we do them, the more our bodies, the more our souls will reward us for doing them. So let's focus on the soul a little bit, you know, technically just for a minute. What is it that our souls want us to be doing? Our souls want us to be ultimately becoming better people, becoming more in touch with our purpose, becoming more in touch with divinity making the world a better place, uplifting the world, introducing divinity into the world. And the technical systems built into the nature of our souls are going to reward us for doing those things. And, you know, all of this is actually incidentally very relevant to the counting of the Omer. Right now we're counting the Omer Sfiros Omer. We're counting the seven weeks that go from the second day of Pesach, of Passover till Shavuos. And... We actually read about it just in this last week's Torah portion as something very interesting. The Torah says two things. It says, and you shall count for yourself seven weeks, i.e. 49 days. And then on the 50th day, we have Shavuos. And that's what we do, right? The counting of the Omer on the first, on the second night of Pesach, we count day number one and we count seven weeks, 49 days. And then the 50th day is Shavuos. But the Torah also says, and you shall count 50 days. So on one hand, it's telling us to count 49 days. It's also telling us to count 50 days. And we get, I mean, technically, if you count 50, you also counted 49. But that's not what it means when it says count 49. And we actually do count 49 days. And the message here is something that's, you know, it's, 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 it's subtle and it's nuanced, but it's so important. And the message here is that, you know, we count 49 days. What happened on Shavuos on the 50th day? The Torah was given. Hashem gave us the Torah. Hashem gave us access to divinity in the Torah. That's not something we could ever create. That's not something we could ever do on our own. That's not something we could ever achieve on our own. What we can do is prepare. We can do what we are supposed to do for 49 days. And when for 49 days we count those seven weeks and we do what we're supposed to, then on the 50th day, there is something that will happen that we are not able to do ourselves. It's a technical impossibility for us to to take the Torah if Hashem hadn't given to us, if God hadn't given to us. We cannot take divinity unless it's given to us to give us that opportunity. What we can do is do our bit. And when we count those 49 days, the 50th day happens. There's something that happens as a result. There's a phenomenon that will emerge as an outcome of us counting our 49 days. And even though we can't actually make that 50th day happen, we could never have, you know, given ourselves the Torah or taken it if Hashem hadn't given it to us. The bottom line is Hashem gave it to us because we counted those 49 days and we did that preparation and we went through that journey So we did facilitate the 50th day. We couldn't make it happen actively. We don't have the ability to manage it, to control it, but we can facilitate it by laying the groundwork. And that's why the Torah, in addition to saying you will count 49 days, it also says you will count 50. Because the 50th day is something that we have facilitated and made possible by counting the 49 days. So we don't technically count today is 50 days. The last time we count is 49. But ultimately, we have counted our way to 
that 50th day and our counting has made the 50th day happen. So in a sense, we have counted that 50th day also. We have counted that 50th day into being by laying the groundwork, the, the groundwork so it could emerge. And the exact same thing is true of happiness. The nature of happiness is that to pursue happiness is self-defeating. Because happiness is something that's built into the nature of our bodies and of our souls as a reward for doing what we're supposed to be doing to encourage us to do more of that. And what we are supposed to be doing doesn't include trying to be happy and pursuing happiness. Now, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that happiness is bad or wrong. God forbid, or there's anything wrong with it. We should all be happy. And, you know, I pray that every one of us has happiness every day of our lives and that that happiness just continues to grow and to become stronger and greater and more profound. But that's not our job is not to pursue happiness. So pursuing happiness by definition will not be rewarded with happiness. Happiness is a biological phenomenon that is there to a degree. It's an outcome of biological phenomena, let's say, that are there to reward us for doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is why being part of a community is rewarding at a very deep personal level, because that reward is there to encourage us to do that because it's good for us and it's what we're supposed to do, ideally, because it's good for us at a technical level. We are supposed to work hard and grow and achieve and make a difference. So when we work hard and grow and achieve and make a difference, we are activating those rewards, both biologically in our bodies and spiritually in our souls. Those rewards that are there to encourage us to do more of those things by rewarding us when we do them. So happiness is not something we can make. It's not something we can technically achieve or introduce. But we can make it happen. We can engage in that which results in happiness. You know, and coming back to the example that we talked about before, I was talking about, you know, pursuing honor and respect. Let's say hypothetically, right? There's someone who says, you know, I'd love to to be honored and to have people respect me. And they're trying, trying, and they see that the more they try, the less people actually respect them and you know maybe they get a bit discouraged and down and then they stop and think and maybe they talk to someone who enlightens them or they learn about it whatever it is and they realize yeah you know what that's not how respect works trying to get respect doesn't cause respect because that's not the way respect works and the pursuit of respect is self-defeating so if i really want people to respect me i'm gonna have to actually be someone who's involved in and dedicated to good things You know, and then they stop and say, huh, yeah, maybe I should get involved in those kinds of things. And then they start getting involved in them. And then the nature of being involved in these sorts of things is, you know, that it is rewarding. And it does encourage us to get more and more involved and more deeply involved and more actively involved, etc. Or at least it can and often, often does. And when that happens, this person starts to forget about the fact that the reason they started down this course was to get honor and respect. And they get more and more involved and more and more engaged with this pursuit. And then ultimately they end up becoming someone who's really dedicated and they end up having people actually respect them. And the way that they did get there and the reason they did get there was because they wanted that respect and honor. Then they understood how it works and realized they have to let go of that and just get involved in those things. And obviously, you know, if we want to get real at the beginning when they get involved in that, it's probably to a degree, you know, 
colored and with an ulterior motive because they're trying to pursue respect by means of doing that which does bring respect. But if they're really doing it properly, ultimately, you know, the reality is that they will probably over time let go of that ulterior motive and it will recede into the background and they'll get pulled more into it. And if that does happen, that's when they'll become the person who people are going to naturally feel respect for. And it's the same thing here. We can introduce happiness into our lives, but not by trying to introduce happiness into our lives because the nature of happiness is that that's not how it works. Nature is a phenomenon that's built into our biology and built into our souls. Just like, and and this is true of fulfillment and satisfaction. All the most valuable things in our lives, things that, you know, by definition, the things that are the most valuable should be things that we can't create. Because if the most valuable things in our lives are things that we can create, then there's going to be a limit on what we can have. Right? If we think about it, one should hope that we can have things in our life that are far beyond what we can create ourselves. Things that are way more valuable and profoundly rewarding and, and truly valuable and objectively valuable and subjectively and experientially valuable than than what we can create ourselves and that what we can achieve. And all of those things by definition, if they're things that we cannot achieve and make ourselves, then how do we get them? How do we get that 50th day? How do we get the Torah? By counting the 49 days. And when we count the 49 days, we have effectively counted the 50th day, even though we don't technically count it, but we've made it happen by counting the first 49. And we can have happiness, not by trying to get it, but by engaging in that which naturally leads to happiness, to satisfaction, to fulfillment. All of these things cannot be created by us. We can't actively introduce them, but we can engage in that which will cause our biology and the systems in our souls to give them to us. And that is by getting involved in the things that happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment are there, are designed to reward. The same way that we can raise our serotonin and our dopamine and our endorphins by engaging in behaviors that they were designed to reward. And when we engage in the behaviors that those things were designed to reward, then they will reward us to encourage us to do it more. When we engage in the behaviors that our souls want us to do and that our biology wants us to do to make a difference to make the world a better place to grow physically and spiritually in our physical health our mental health our 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 personal spiritual development and to make the world a better place the more we get involved in these things and making a difference that will it won't create happiness but it will result in happiness because that will activate the reward systems in our bodies and in our souls that will give us that fulfillment and that satisfaction and that well-being and that happiness. So ultimately, the way to maximize our happiness is to maximize the realization of our purpose. And the more we fulfill our purpose, the more we fulfill what our bodies and souls want from us, the more they will reward us, the more we will activate those innate reward systems.
and the, the, the healthier we'll be and the happier we'll be. This has been the Bites of Judaism podcast. If it hit the spot, please leave a five-star rating and a review. It will really help it reach more people and tell your friends about it. If you haven't yet, you can subscribe on all major podcast platforms at rabbiglick.link slash podcast. If you'd like to dedicate a future episode of the podcast, send an email to podcast at rabbiglick.com. See you next time.